welcome to the new Scots We Hey podcast and we're joined today by writer Andrew Raymond Drennan. Hello Andrew. Hi Elsa. And thanks for coming along and doing this. Thank you. Um, we're here because you've just published your third novel, that's right isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, the Limits of the World and a, well it's set, I remember about four years ago I was talking to you and you just, The Immaculate Heart I think had just come out which was your second novel. Yeah and asked you what you were doing next and you said you've got this idea i'm going to set it in korea in north korea yeah oh that's interesting okay i'd be interested to see what happens with that and four years later here it is and you've done it so how did you get to this stage from that time from that initial idea about wanting to write outside of scotland (laughs) i think you were probably the only person who didn't tell me that i was totally crazy (laughs) because yeah i remember telling quite a few people uh, about the idea for the book back mm-hmm. then and uh, it's a bit weird when you haven't really started something but you've got an idea for a book yeah. and you want to tell the world about it and it's a bit weird that you've not written a word but yeah you just feel like really strongly about it and everyone told me that I was crazy for doing it and when I tried to explain why um, I couldn't really pin it down mm-hmm. exactly the first little germ of a, of the of an idea for it came when I was lying on my couch in a flat in Paisley, really hungover, and I was watching BBC News. Uh, it was like a World Service program, and they were running a wee half-hour documentary about North Korea. Right. And I'd always kind of wondered about what the country was really like, and I'd heard mm-hmm. all the you know absurdist stories about Kim Jong Il's eighteen holes in one when yeah, he first yeah. played golf and all that other stuff and um, yeah I'd, uh, what I saw in that documentary was unlike anything I'd ever, I could ever have imagined really Yeah. and I started looking into some books and see if there were any books about it I wanted to learn some more and there was just nothing there, there mm-hmm. was no non-fiction that's changed obviously in the last couple of years, there's been a huge amount of escapees doing their memoirs and um, it's almost become a bit of a given that there's this rich literature about yeah. North Korea around now and it wa- that wasn't the case just a couple of years before and when I started writing uh, Limits it was literally the it would have been the, the first English language novel that was set in modern yeah. North Korea Well, what struck me about reading it is it's such a different place Mm-hmm. It feels like a different time as well as a different place, and um, it's one of the, the things behind the book is this um, underground um, dealing in Western literature. It's kind mm-hmm. of central to the book itself, yeah. and the the secrecy of of of, of it's almost unbelievable that the, the the levels of secrecy that are involved here. So how did you make sure that you were going to get this right? Because I imagine that was hugely important to you. It was really hard. Uh, at the start, I basically, I had a, a hardcore of about three non-fiction books on North Korea that I was relying on for mm-hmm. research. And I found that I'd ex- exhausted them pretty quickly. Uh, I started falling back on, there was a lot of really good documentaries on, on YouTube. There was a Vice magazine one, which was which was hugely important. Another one called Holidays in the Axis of Evil. Right, yeah, yeah. A really great reporter called Ben McIntyre, who was a 
a big influence on my own reporter called Ben yeah. in the in the book. And um, yeah, I've forgotten the question. Well, you see, <laughs> the there's two reporters, there's two Western reporters, an American and, a, and, and an Englishman. Yeah. Um, and in a way, you'd think you're going to see what unfolds through their eyes, but actually, that's not true. The central character is Korean, and it's his mm-hmm. struggle to remain true to himself and still remain true to what's a huge party system, isn't it? Well, Han was really Han was always the going to be the main guy. Right. He was the he was my hero basically. Yeah. I, I wanted to write a hero. Yeah. And uh, Ben and How, the British and American characters, they were very much there for. Um, they weren't always there actually. Okay. Um, there was originally Han was just showing around uh, Japanese tourists, and it was it was. It was too difficult to. The country was so sprawling and so absurd and complex and complex that I needed two westerners so you can almost guide the reader through. I the, think that works really well through the book because it is such an unusual terrain that when they are being taken around uh, Pyongyang and uh, being shown the sights they're allowed to see and then trying to see the things that they're not supposed to, mm-hmm. you can imagine yourself in their position whereas I think it's more difficult to imagine yourself in Han's position in that way mm-hmm. um, apart from the very human things that come out um, like his, I suppose his love of books so this um, the idea that art in some way kind of can set you free was that at the centre to the idea of the book as well? Yeah that was the whole um, I mean b- before I start a book there's an overall, there's an overarching um, sort of idea that's going to, that's all, if I ever get stuck, that's what it's always going to come back to. Yeah. So with the Immaculate Heart, the the main idea was um, what if someone was to, uh, to want and crave love so much that it drove them insane mm-hmm. uh, with... Uh, my first book it was about how could uh, someone's personal grief uh, relate to a wider sort of societal grief if you like mm-hmm. the, the state of politics and Limits was always going to be in my mind um, uh, very much influenced by uh, the German film The Lives of Others that is it. funny enough I've got that written down as is that a, a, was that an influence so um, for those who haven't seen it, you should maybe explain a little bit. Well, it's set during the Stasi period in, in East Germany, mm-hmm. and it's about a, a very talented playwright who is kind of operating uh, in his in his own and with his own artistic freedom, but still under the constraints of the Stasi system. He's still giving the party what they want, and his plays have to represent the country the way that they want. And that starts to change after a series of personal traumas. And uh, there's a really interesting idea about um, his partner possibly going to betray him. And it's about really having to choose over personal love for love for a political system or a political party. So um, in that sense, I pretty much just stole that template because I think there's something there's 
that film just felt totally timeless to me and um, I, I just think people will be watching that film in 50, 100 years time, I really do So The Lives of Others was um, one influence um, what other influences <coughs> did you have when writing it? Well in a, a kind of textural sense a Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates right. was when I used to describe the book to friends when I was working on it I said that I was working on my Richard Yates novel right. basically um, because I just think that he had a, a way of speaking about uh, love and desire and loneliness and longing in a way that I'd always wanted to and um, but because these are central themes in the book and again that makes me wonder why Korea would you felt that it was the place I mean I'm really pleased you have because it took me to somewhere I'd never even considered going in a novel yeah. but why you decided that Korea would be the setting for that because these are universal themes and I think your writing does deal with very universal themes well this is this then gets into I guess really my sense of alienation I guess from the Scottish lit scene mm -hmm. at the time I felt really um, I was awful tired of being any review that I got I was always Scottish writer Andrew Raymond Renan the Scottish book by Scottish writer etc yeah. etc et and I just wanted to I, I don't know when it happened that uh, Scottish writers weren't supposed to sort of branch out and do something a little bit bigger you know no yeah. one really like questioned when Philip Roth uh, you know set a book in the Czech Republic yeah um, and I I just I felt really alienated from from the whole scene no one was speaking and and in the same language I felt like as what I thought this the state of the world at the time uh, so get it was too inward that was the problem a lot yeah of there was total navel gazing and there was just the, there was no sense of ambition and um, I just wanted to do something that I just wanted to get as far away as possible and I just thought well screw it I mean I would, I'm just going to try and do the, what's the, the hardest task that I could set myself yeah. I'm going to set a book in a country that no one knows anything about mm -hmm. and I mean the, I guess there's a, an element of hey look at me no hands type of thing mm -hmm. um, uh, and trying to do that but um, I've always been a bit of a show off so. <laughs> but the, in, yeah, the way a lot of the things you talk about could have been in a similar setting to Immaculate Heart but going back to that when you said you were going to set it in North Korea I was so pleased that someone as you say was showing um, trying to do something completely different and in a different way and as you say um, I when Ian Banks set his science fiction mm -hmm. in, you know, obviously in, in other universes, mm -hmm. nobody would even think about that. If he was to write, no, he did set some fiction overseas as well, um, but most yeah. writers just, you know, wouldn't wouldn't have made that kind of leap. Well, I, I, I guess that, that there was, uh, apart from, it's not just a question of trying to get uh, farther away, but um, trying to get, like, internally further away as well. Yeah. I think the... I was in a bit of a weird place, like mm -hmm. personally back then, and I, I just there was something about this the, the 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 blank slate. It was an empty, it was a blank canvas, 
really um, was North Korean, I could kind of colour it really any way that I wanted. And when I watched those documentaries about North Korea, it was there was something about uh, the isolation and and disconnectedness from the rest of the world that I just sort of recognised elements and I just thought it said so much mm-hmm. about how the how we in the West particularly live um, to do with like we have more ways than ever of of connecting and, and mm-hmm. talking and I mean God look at us just sitting here doing this podcast yeah. you know whereas it seems like when you know we've got more people uh, than ever on antidepressants and the suicide rate of young men continues to skyrocket and there just seems to be a sense of um, the, the modern world is promising as a huge amount and delivering very little. Yeah. Now, I don't want to people to misinterpret this as my solution for it is that we should... <laughs> the people in North Korea are somehow happier than us. That's, and that's, that's quite not, clear in the book. Yeah, <laughs> that's not at all what I mean. I don't mean that um, us with our consumerist ways and they who live so frugally and simply, mm. that's the response. But my point is, is that they have... the There's something at root... And humanity, there's something deeply, deeply wrong with us that they have the they have the the, the same problems. Mm. I think we just we haven't solved any of them. What I took from it was that um, no matter what the political system, it nearly always falls down by human frailty or human <coughs> um, whether it's greed or whatever. Uh, that's where. On paper, a lot of systems look as though they might work, mm-hmm. and then of course you add in you know, the human element to it, and, and that's often where the things break down. Well, because the the political system in North Korea is is so um, is so unique in the sense that it completely uh, it puts the self in a total vacuum. Mm-hmm. The self doesn't exist in North Korea. The only thing that matters is uh, the party. Songbun, military first. Um, it's it's all about and actually at the uh, the 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 ideology behind a lot of their politics is basically just outright racist because the, the their whole system is predicated on the notion that the Korean race is a hundred percent superior to. To anywhere else yeah. in the world, and that's why they have thrived so, so, so well, etc. And um, it's a uh, it the control that is shown by the government. Um, it makes the life of others look, you know, like a kind of hippie coin. You know, almost no, somebody no. gets pulled in because their pictures of the great leader have got fingerprints on them, and they've not been looked after, which yeah. is seen as a sign of dissent, almost or yeah. not caring. Um, children from a young age, the fact that they come out with something which is a, a against the system, this is remembered and, and, and punished. Um, the, it's, it's, almost, it's almost unbelievable, which is the great thing about it, because then again, it's absolutely rings true. Well, there's a, there's, it might be semi-apocryphal, but um, there is a, a story that, um, obviously, I, I didn't witness this mm-hmm. um, but 
there was as a, a Westerner who was going around uh, Pyongyang with his, his tourist group and he was so worn down by the monotony and the repetition of all the rhetoric and stuff and so he finally asked his mind or you know can I go somewhere that's not sort of about politics and stuff and so they, they, they take him to the zoo and he's walking around and he's seeing all the animals you know fairly sort of subdued and um, he gets to the 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 bird cages and he's thinking oh this is great and I'm finally you know I'm experiencing a bit of freedom yeah and he looks into the cage of a parrot and the parrot yells back long live the the great leader <laughs> Kim Il-sung I'd like to think that that story is true yeah I think that it says quite a lot about the country even if it's not but. one of the, the reason well one of the good things about setting it where it is is that the um a, what's the word I'm looking for? Suppression of any art which isn't related to um, the, the, the government sanctioned art, if you like, mm-hmm. is seen as a completely subversive and you know can be punished in, in, in all sorts of ways, which I don't think you could have in modern day in any other society, I'm not sure. But you, you would be shot in North Korea if, if someone found a short story that you'd written that, that didn't praise the party or wasn't about the wonders of the the socialist system you would be executed no question so this idea of kind of art as as a subversive thing um when did that idea come from that that, you know that uh, this was going to be central to the book well i mean i always i knew that it was always going to be books it had to be books that han uh, was was going to get his hands on purely on uh, a technological um, basis it's just easier to trade in books in the black market but when I, s- I started talking to uh, one of the translators that helped me with uh, the Chozungu script mm-hmm. in the book um, it's very hard to, to translate but I asked him if he knew of anyone who'd like been to been to the north or even any northerners themselves mm-hmm. and he managed to track a few down through the Korean community and one of them had had said to me that she she'd not long started reading in English, and she was talking to me about Richard Yates, right? And she was talking about April and Frank and Revolutionary Road, and she was saying how she couldn't believe that when she'd read uh, she'd read this book, how you could love someone uh, so fully as April does Frank. And rather than just loving the party, it was so unthinkable to her that you could do that, that you could love another person or you could love a book or you could love the idea that you have all these thoughts and feelings that you can express however way you want. I mean, it's it's so basic and obvious to us because we we do it every single day. And don't I think nothing of it? that's when I started to realise well I mean beyond all of my artistic and fictional um, sort of ambitions this is actually pretty damn real mm. and there are actually uh, I, I did find a, a novelist a North Korean novelist obviously doesn't live there anymore yeah, sure. but um, yeah um, they they had written fiction whilst in 
in the north and um, so there are North Korean novelists out there just not very many of them yeah the thing that's brought it home to me was the idea that you can play a musical instrument but be uh, but have to be careful about what you play because mm-hmm. you know the idea that um, uh, mastering a musical instrument you are then free to express yourself in any which way mm-hmm. but that it just seems like the most you know horrific caging of anyone's expression freedom of expression mm-hmm. well I, I, I really like this this idea of May um, she the way that she sort of feels alive is, is through music and she's a cellist and, yeah. yes mm-hmm. yeah very um, very talented cellist and um, Dvorak is her um, is her real passion which she she plays uh, secretly in her building alone and I really like the collision of these two languages because so much of the the book's tension is predicated on this idea of I don't know, you know, like you and I, I don't really know what's going through mm-hmm. your head right now. We're both trying to work out each other yeah. and there are great limits about what we'll know about mm-hmm. that. And the only way we can do that is by talking more. Yeah. And the way that they get to the heart of that is by Han wants to share his journal with her. Mm-hmm. He wants her to read what he doesn't think he can otherwise communicate and for her she wants to play her music to him um, and I just think it's, it's kind of I, I wanted to make it so almost like the one the only thing that they couldn't do to express their truths was through language they, there's a line in the book um, about don't trust strangers you know I think mm-hmm. uh, his father had passed it down to him or something like that there was two rules in life and in this way in in, in um North Korea, it's almost don't trust anyone. There, mm-hmm. you know, even people that they consider friends, or certainly people that they work with, or um, there's a fantastic scene at the beginning where he sees um, a actually a traffic warden or traffic police, yeah. and you know, it starts comes up with fantasies about what might happen if they were to talk and everything. But then oh, this. That whole conversation's operating on like three or four different yeah. levels. But because, that's nearly yeah. every conversation is, I think. Yeah, it, it's almost like I mean, Han's trying to work out if uh, if she's like a true believer, if she's a party acolyte, and how much can he can he give away too much of himself here and just talk about how he really feels? But then she's trying to um, anticipate if he's just trying to trick her and. There's so many, yeah, there's like double and triple negatives going on with how they're trying to, to talk. And it's only really when uh, Han and May, after a lot of, going through a lot of things, decide that they will be truthful with each other as much as you can be, that um, they decide to change both their lives uh, in, in as radical way as they can. Mm-hmm. There seems to be, and I think it's in your other books as well, this idea that relationships or love can can save you, if you like, or save each other. <laughs> yeah. That's not too uh, grand. No, no I'd, I've always been... Uh, <laughs> I've tried to cast off this romanticism, but ah. I just can't I just can't quite shift it. I mean, like, David Foster Wallace is, is my hero, and I cannot think of like a single instance where he kind of extols the virtues of love and being in love Mm -hmm. and so it's almost like I feel if I 
try to talk about love or romantic love as being redemptive or um, there's something about literature that can be morally instructive about love that that's somehow a bit kind of fey or something um, but I, I just kind of I don't really care anymore mm-hmm. you know I just I, sincerity was a word that I kept coming back to yeah. when I was working on this I just I just didn't care anymore about what anyone thought of I was tired of the language games I was tired of the uh, feeling like I was just pouring out my own personal diary mm-hmm. you know as a means of, of writing fiction um, and I just wanted to do something that was just completely I actually thought that writing something that was just totally genuinely sincere was more radical than continuing down the path that I started uh, looking around at what everyone else was doing I just thought that that was the that was the natural way. Yeah, I, I know exactly go. what you mean. That you you're not writing for yourself. You're writing for some imagined reader, and I think when you start doing that, you know it can be problematic because mm-hmm. you're, you're you know not particularly honest. I think the love story is vital to this book because it drags you. It not drags the reader through, but it gives you something on a you know purely emotional level to root for. And and it was really dictated by Orwell as well because Christopher Hitchens said in his he wrote a very famous article called Worse Than 1984 in Vanity Fair a number of years ago and he talked about this idea that he was going to be the first writer to write about North Korea and not mention 1984 or Orwell and he just gave up after a couple of days he thought this is preposterous they live in a slave state where you have to constantly worship a president who's who's dead yeah. as well. You can't share or, or talk about anything that's not about the party. And they, basically, they, they make it impossible. And um, so that's why I, I started out not wanting to talk about Orwell or 1984. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I reached this point about halfway through where... I just realised that I couldn't figure out what book it was that Han was going to yeah. give me, and it just it just made sense. Yeah, do you know? And um, everything else afterwards just fell into place then because everything after that point was just going to be, are they going to turn out like Winston and Julian? You've got a parallel relationship. Yeah, it works. It works really well that way. Um, I think if it's possible, you could give us a reading from the book and then. We'll come back and chat a little bit more about the, some of the themes that are in it. Yeah, well, this is not too long into into the novel. Um, this is basically just Han sitting in his bed, trying to process his first day back in Pyongyang. Okay. Han's evening read had to be taken in bed due to the draft from the loose living room window seals. After rummaging around under the creaking floorboard. Dismissing various titles on impulse, he settled on the sorrows of young Werther. Something about the title and the forlornness of the man's face in the front cover spoke deeply to him. The man looked like a Germanic version of Han, eyes that looked sad no matter how they were used. He got into bed with a puff of warm air into his fists and wheeled his gas heater a little closer. As soon as he read the first line, he knew he had made the right choice. 
How happy I am to be away. My dear friend, what a thing is the heart of man. To leave you, whom I love so, from whom I was inseparable, and to be happy. Those three exclamations in a row, the honest joy of the man's realisation, and to speak of happiness when clearly he had been suffering, this was why he read. Where there's happiness and suffering somehow infused with his own, and Han felt himself to be in the novel, feeling what Werther was. Han wanted Werther to instruct him how to feel. They had much in common, except the most vital element Han craved, freedom. After an hour, Han realised he wasn't monitoring how many pages were going by, or comparing the thin slither of red to unread pages, as he so often did when plots tired or characters stopped speaking to him. He knew where there wasn't a novel he could skip a few lines of here and there, or skim just for dialogue as he had when he was younger. It now felt to Han that the only satisfying explanation of what a novel is, is about was every word of the novel itself. Once when he was a small boy, his father had happened on an illicit recording of Schumann's Traumerei, and whilst listening to it his father had left the room. When he returned, he was distraught to find Han hadn't lifted the needle to pause the music. He replaced the needle, and Han heard a combination of piano keys that made him forget to breathe. When the passage ended, his father opened his eyes and explained to Han, that is why I never skip a note of music. You never know what you might miss. Han stopped reading when his eyes merely drifted over the words, scanning rather than reading, and he realised he hadn't actually taken in anything that had been said the last three pages. The cold still got in under the blankets no matter how tightly he tried to seal up every leak. His feet felt like they were glowing with cold under his socks. He slid his bookmark into the page and left the book on his bedside cabinet, where a candle had been slithering down, an oily lagoon of wax shimmering below the flame. He thought of Ryong, asking whether he had a girl at home, and Han found himself picturing the traffic warden he had met that morning. Fantasising about strangers was the closest Han could get to relieving loneliness. In fantasies, strangers could love and desire him as fully and intensely as his imagination could summon. In what few short-lived relationships he had had, Han found that no matter what declarations were made, physical or verbal, between two people, there was something about the self that the other person would never have access to, like a wall too high to, cl to ever climb over. And as long as Han felt trapped on the other side of that wall, love would always be somehow incomplete. What he liked so much about reading was it broke the illusion that one person's interior life was any less complex than another's, regardless of how unaware they were of it or failed to articulate it. But in real life, all Han's partner's feelings and emotions, which were incredibly deep and intricate and complex and seemed to beg for explanation every single moment of the day, could never hope to be understood the same way Han understood his own interior life. He was forever locked out of anyone else, and forever locked in himself. With a fantasy, Han built the other person's self for them, like a novelist does, and in a weird paradox made the imagined love feel somehow more real and tangible than actual love. His cold hands felt unmysterious and clumsy travelling down his stomach towards his erection, Sexual inexperience made his body feel underused and torpid. Over time, he tried to convince himself that masturbation was a perfectly adequate replacement for sex, that the ultimate feeling, his own sensory, neurological and ontological pleasure, was ultimately the same. 
particularly the ontological part, because nothing is as unique like a snowflake yours as an orgasm. But it was a lie. Masturbation was a lie. A lie that said it was a fraud that another person could make you more supremely yourself. It was a failure on a human level. Sex is to masturbation is what comedy is to telling a joke to an empty room. Because to Han half the pleasure of sex was derived from making someone else feel ecstasy. Their foreign hands becoming warm and familiar, gently figuring out where to touch in search of the kind of orgasm that makes your IQ disappear. With masturbation, as soon as the orgasm was over, whatever fantasy he had conjured, no matter how elaborate and vivid it seemed just a few seconds ago, quickly vanished. This was where it became complicated for Han. The only cure, it was really more of a treatment than a cure, for loneliness was the exact thing that made him lonely in the first place. He simply couldn't connect in any real meaningful way with another person. The harder he tried to imagine the traffic warden's touch, the more alone he felt. Fantastic. I'm really pleased you read that because that's one of my, that's one of my favourite bits in the book. Um, this idea of the fantasy and the imagination which can't be denied, you know, no matter, mm-hmm. even though the physical art itself, the book or the song or anything like that, it can be suppressed, the imagination, the, I mean, you refer a few times to the idea of the, you know, the man who is um, locked up but still is free in his thoughts mm-hmm. and how he fantasises and how he dreams. And, and actually, this idea of the difference between uh, masturbation and um, a real relationship when he meets the Pyongyang Book Club, he, he can share experiences or meet people who have shared experiences mm-hmm. in art as well. Um, was that this idea of the, uh, the role of art in society is one I'm really interested in, and the ability to bring people together? I think it's I think it's about unlocking. Really, there's obviously a huge amount of cage imagery in there mm-hmm. and prison imagery. Um, I know some literal prisons as well. Yeah. Purely because I think that art is art and and love are absolutely the the keys to unlocking these cages that we find ourselves in because we are completely we're we're just cut adrift in the yeah. world and I think there's something about being in a bed alone that it's the great equalizer. You know, it's like everyone, everyone I like to think in the world, no matter what country they're, they're in, no matter under what regime, they, I think we all just become the same when we're alone. Really. Um, but something like, you know, reading a book or listening to a piece of music or, or seeing a film or something like that, this is the, takes us out of that. Yeah, this is, this, is the, this is the cure. I mean, Jonathan Franzen wrote a wonderful essay all about it. And David Foster Wallace talked extensively about this idea that that reading is it it lets you in in a way that you you really can't in in another in another medium. I mean, I guess the maybe the cl- the closest ones are film and music, and there are things that those can do that literature can't. Mm-hmm. But I think when you're talking about finding a way in and unlocking another person there's there's something and I'm going to sound a bit sort of semi-mystical talking about this but I there's just something about literature that um, it it 
just lets you in in a way yeah and this is the place to talk about it because I agree with you completely um, there's a lot of that I suppose in terms there's a lot of philosophy in the book as well specifically with quotes from Count Wittgenstein and things like that mm-hmm. what I was really interested in was this idea of Jushi Jushi the, the Korean um, is that philosophy would that be fair enough to say it's, it's an ideology um, it's a uh, um, I guess that I mean there's no point in me trying to explain it because mm-hmm. there are dozens and dozens of books being written about it in okay. Korea and no one actually can can land on what it right. actually means I mean the simplest way that I could explain it is that Korea is best a unified Korea is even better and Koreans are better than everyone else yeah, so it's this is almost a philosophy which backs up the government, or the government point of view. The yeah, it, it is complete. It is completely a, a mechanism, a, a self-serving mechanism, uh, to to prop up the system. Yeah, and um, it seems to run through. It, I suppose it's used in a way as a, a kind of brainwashing technique from a young age because it's kind of put right mm-hmm. from right at the beginning. It's even used to pick the national football team as well that's, that's true yeah uh, there are there are um, really talented North Korean footballers that can't get into the team because uh, their families uh, Songbun they are uh, I guess um, class status mm-hmm. uh, as viewed through the previous generations isn't uh, isn't privileged enough wow I suppose there have been similar things to that in other places, but that's uh, that's fascinating. Maybe Scotland should consider that. <laughs> well, there was a while where I think might some people might. would say, you know, if you weren't from the right school, or you wouldn't get in the certain, certainly in certain teams. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk, you said about cages and, and prisons and a literal prison. The there are horrors throughout the book, or maybe not horrors, more such a things that bring you up short so oh, I, I can't hope believe so. that but then there is the Camp 22 chapter which is properly horrific yeah. and visceral and it really kind of switches the feel of things I don't know if that was a deliberate thing or not but suddenly yeah, you go gosh this, this is hell on earth as much as you could get I had to I couldn't live with myself if I if that chapter wasn't in there and there was an editor at another publishing house had asked me to remove it mm-hmm. and I refused um, because taking that chapter out is almost like pretending that the reality of the country isn't what it is mm-hmm. and no I needed a change in tone purely because uh, for structural reasons we're moving into more of a uh, the last third of the book uh, is a lot more is is quite fast paced yeah, and there's yeah. even some <laughs> some action scenes almost there's there's literally a car chase yeah there is um, yeah I just I needed something that was that was really just going to lay out look what's actually at stake here on mm-hmm. a human level what's actually at stake and I think you're at that point in the book if you're still with the book at that point then. You're you've kind of accepted the country, yeah. 
and now it's time to start dealing with the less fun stuff. The reality. So, yeah. yeah, the stuff that's not just absurd, but is actually upsetting. Mm-hmm. It was it was upsetting to write, actually. Yeah. It was really unpleasant to write. I remember vividly the night that I wrote the like the 99% of mm-hmm. that material. And I, I just I stayed up all night, and I just remember the sun coming up uh, through my living room window, uh, the, the next morning and I just felt so much relief that it was over and I could get back to my other characters um, I'm surprised that someone asked you to take out, maybe I'm not but it's definitely needed because you've got to the stage of the book, think you're right, you think I know how this is perhaps going to go and then you get the strength of feeling, you learn more about Han because of where he's come from and you're right, it, it this is not simply absurd. This is absolutely, for some people, horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, I think it does the job, hopefully, that you, you meant it to. Um, a question that came to me was about the idea of courage as well. The idea of bravery when you have nothing to lose or when you have everything to lose. There seems mm-hmm. to be a point where, you know, is one more courageous than the other? And I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, because Han, Han has kind of got nothing to lose. He's set himself up. I think someone says that at some point, actually. I think he. I, I, I think the. Is it? Is it your? Um, I think the authorial voice says. Says, or is it Rion? I think. Yeah, I think it's Rion. He says he's got to go back because he has got family. Yes. He has got things to lose, and I just it was, there maybe has no answer to it. Uh, it was just an interesting um, question about it. It's maybe not bravery, it's just this know. idea of um, uh, me and, and Han have got to the point where they, they've got to leave it behind because there's no going back for them. Hmm. You say, well, you've got the courage to see this through. Yes, I have. Whereas, is Leon going back? Is that the braver thing to do? I don't know. It was just something which, uh, it's an interesting question that popped up. Well, one, one thing that I'd, I've been, uh, I've, I've just finished writing a blog for waterstones.com that's right. going up in a couple of days, and the title of it is Would You Risk Death to Read a Book? Mm-hmm. And I really hope that if, like, if I've succeeded and my job as a novelist, that I will really make people think hard about really would you really if you're in the same position would you mm. have the strength of your convictions as as what Han and, and May have yeah um, because I put myself in that position and like I used to call myself a book lover but having talked to North Korean dissidents who risk their lives every day just to read uh, George Eliot <laughs> the it goes, I suppose, to the, the point that you made right at the beginning when we talked about the, diff, the, the West and how um, there are um, problems of almost uh, excess in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, you know, we've got, how many bookshops we've got in the city? Not as many as we used to have, but still mm-hmm. plenty. We can walk into any books and get any book that we pretty much like. And the cost of just finding, you know, one copy of E.E. E. Cummings' Poetry and what that actually means to hold on to that. And then, and I don't want to give anything away. Yeah, the thing that we both want to talk about, yeah. we can't talk, <laughs> we we can't can't talk, talk about, about yeah. uh, is, is, is exactly that. It's just such a collision. And then you see, I said before, it's like going in time and place, and that works the other way around. Um, this is literally, when, especially when the American Westerners, and I think for Western readers, 
it's cultures clashing in a way that you you kind of don't expect and you end up questioning your own kind of culture for want of a better word as well it's really just about asking um particularly towards the end without giving anything mm. away um are we if if you imagine yourself living in north korea uh, under all of those constraints and then you think back to our own lives um, are we <laughs> see th- these things are incredibly complex to to talk about and in a way I'm not sure that I'm qualified mm-hmm. to, to do it well absolutely fair enough but I think the the you what you've managed to do is not be overly um, punishing on either system, whether it's a Western. I know that's a huge generalisation, but you know the the the, the system that um, Ben and Hal are from, and also the, the North Korean system. And you let the reader, I think, decide for themselves, and they can make up their own, you know, judgments on it. I think I think the the best way that I could articulate it would be to kind of suggest if if you are if you're going to remain uh, locked inside yourself um, you're you're doomed to loneliness regardless of what you are surrounded by yeah that's the closest I can get to some sort of an explanation about it what um, I should say is, is I haven't mentioned it at all but the book I think the book's beautifully written I think some of the stuff in it is just fantastic um, the, some of the aphorisms you use the phrases you use uh, you know I've been, you can see the amount of notes I've made in the book itself I've noted them down um, I, I'd like if I could if it's possible mm-hmm. I'm going to read the very end bit from Han is that okay? is that yeah yeah yeah. Because this this is uh, how the book finishes, and I think it sums up a lot of what the book is uh, about. Hans' final entry, and even though I am in here, and you are in there, someday, in any given place, a stranger might play a piece of music that lifts the roof off the world, or writes a book that dissolves the bars of a cage, or drops a foot in the ocean and raises the water just slightly enough on the other side of the world them to notice and that stranger will no longer feel like a stranger and as you read these words you might know who I really am they are the only door I can open the only cage I can unlock the limits of everything I am the limits of the world I think that's one of the best things I've read in a long long time I worked on that oh my god <laughs> I, I, I know I shouldn't like um, you know take people behind the scenes of this yeah. sort of stuff that got rewritten so many times and I struggled so hard to um, it was basically like I'd been trying to write that passage for about four years almost I mean in my head a lot of the time yeah. and it was always there and I wish I could say that some kind of alchemy struck when I when, it, when I started typing mm-hmm. it out but it really wasn't I'd, I really had to um, I really had to work on that one but I'm work it and rework it and rework it till you were I'm quite proud of it uh, and so you should be 
Um, I think that's the perfect place to finish. So, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And all the best with the book. I think it deserves to reach a wide audience. And um, we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers.